as I was doing research for this episode, I came across a video game match of Giant Gonzalez and the Great Kali, and it had 5.6 million views on YouTube. And I really had a moment where I almost just stopped all of our research because it's like, why are we fucking trying anything creative when a video game match gets 5.6 million views? I don't know. I give up. I'm done talking. Well, I mean, it's got to be it's got to be an algorithm. Like there's got to be an equal amount of people who are searching Great Kali matches <laughs> and an, another equal amount of people who are looking for Giant Gonzalez matches. I don't, uh, and this is this is the perfect intersection on the internet where they meet because we didn't get it in reality, but we got it in virtual reality, which is where we're going to be living very soon. <laughs> so According to Elon Musk. 2.8 million on each and they all came together at mm-hmm. 5.6. Exactly. Jesus. That, that that's that's their both their Q ratings. million is their Q rate. (laughs) Or us in this podcast is at best 10,000. Yeah. So, Nick, what do you say? Give up or keep going? We got to start dubbing our audio over video games, apparently. Okay, I'm down. Well, hello. This is Tim Bell, where we discuss pro wrestlers who are now booked in the big ring in the sky. While uh, Super Mario Brothers is playing in the background, because apparently that's a new (laughs) format of this podcast. We're going to put this podcast over us playing video games from the past. (laughs) I'm Nick Alexander, and I suggest you get over as a monster hill with the ladies by calling your premature ejaculation squash matches. Wow. <laughs> 2,115 miles away from me, over in the Manning Cave, I'm joined as always by Micah Loving. Hey, it's too early. And as well as the toast of the Weeblos, Troop 83's MVP, the Charlie Chaplin of going camping. The Man Scout, Jake Manning. <laughs> this is the one you were proud of. This is the one you were proud of. The, the uh, Charlie Chaplin one. The Charlie Chaplin. Okay, I, I'll. I got. I can see why you were a little excited about That's that. That's pretty solid. <laughs> I mean, I could like nitpick it, but I'm not going to be that dick. Well, I think you want you want to nitpick it because uh, most of our listeners don't know this, but as we're recording this, just a few days ago, me and Nick Alexander got to hang out for almost an entire day, and it's been a long time since me and Nick have hung out in person since he moved to like Hollywood, California. Mm. Yeah, and he got super rich and famous. Um, so, uh, of course, Micah feels a little left out. Yeah. So he's he's going to be a little salty right now. Totally. I'm, I'm a bit of a curmudgeon anyways because my schedule has just pulled me apart from the seams. So if you see that Micah's a little bit testy, yeah. it's because he felt left out because me and Nick had a wonderful time. And in Hollywood, we turned in like eight spec scripts. So I'm expecting <laughs> that we're, we're going to be even more rich and famous uh, coming up in the next couple months. Jake is 100% correct, and I hate them both. Today, we are discussing the tallest man to ever wrestle, a man who paved the road for fellow basketball players Carl Malone and Dennis Rodman to enter pro wrestling. The motherfucker sold like a wacky, welling, inflatable tube man. He was (laughs) the great giant Gonzalez. Size 22 shoe, which I think has Shaq beat. I think Shaq was 21. I don't know, but it's 22 and a quintuple 5XL t-shirt. Why don't you Jesus. ask Shaq right now? Because we're on. That's just terrible. That's the NBA tonight thing. Charles, <laughs> Charles, you crazy. Charles, you crazy. Uh, Ernie, you want to uh. straighten out this fool for me? <laughs> Ernie, straighten this fool out for me. You're Ernie, Nick. Pick it up. I know. I'm the Ernie. I'm the- I just <laughs> sound like a white yeah, dude. Just do it, Eddie. <laughs> Eddie Murphy, white guy. That's just, that's just, Ernie. Just put on a bow tie and humor us. <laughs> Boom shakalaka. I love mayonnaise. <laughs> nope. I don't know how to do Kenny Smith, so we'll pass on Kenny Smith. By all accounts, Giant Gonzalez was just the nicest dude ever. Uh, a gentle yep. giant. And a lot of the hate he gets from being a pro wrestler wasn't quite his fault. He was rushed into the business. He had no experience with it or knowledge of it. And he got like paraded around main events and high profile matches without being properly trained. And this led to his career in pro wrestling maybe not being like the best. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a positive way to spin that, yeah. 
Well, I think the output wasn't the best, but the input was probably the best. <laughs> he was putting the best spots ever. Yeah. So, and everybody's plan was like, oh, this is the next Andre. Yeah, he'll just become Andre. It's not like Andre had years and years and years outside the U.S. before he came in and was the amazing beast that he was. Nah. Or, or the sense of like Andre like had a, a genuine love for wrestling where I think John Gonzalez, a lot of it was like, well, I'm super big. I like playing basketball. They're not going to let me play basketball anymore. I would like to continue to make money. They're telling me because of my size, super big, once again, that's how I got into this basketball thing. They're like, hey, why don't you try wrestling? We will give you money to do so. I need money. <laughs> You're saying I'm good at it because of who I am. That's kind of how I got in this basketball situation, which worked out pretty well for me. Why don't I continue going down a path that uh, I'm walking down because I'm super fucking tall? Jorge Gonzalez was born January 31st, 1966 in El Colorado, Formosa, Argentina. That's got to be an address in L.A. somewhere, like El Colorado, Formosa, <laughs> yeah. Argentina Street. Like it has It's to off be. of Cahuenga. Yeah. History lesson. Who launched Luna 9 on this exact same day towards the moon? January 31st, 1966, Luna 9. Russia? USSR, half credit. All right, I'll take it. <laughs> Jorge suffered from gigantism. Uh, real quick on the giganticism, I, the one that I did not know was his tolerance to light is affected. Oh. That, that's a weird fucked up one, and if you think about WrestleMania 9, that doesn't help the match oh, either. Yeah. He's <laughs> Being in a desert outside? Yeah, that would fuck you up as far as light. It also affects... And in Vegas as well. <laughs> yeah. So It also affects his perspiration, so there you go. We'll get to that, but yeah. Jorge started his basketball career at the age of 16, and by that time, he was Shaquille O'Neal's height. This bit's just terrible. <laughs> Jorge eventually played some pro ball in Argentina before a injury sidelined him. Kind of goes without saying, he was a pretty dominating post presence. And uh, any video you find of him is just him dunking on everyone. The weirdest thing, when I actually looked up his stats, he had a big uh, 22 points and 10 rebounds, or 11 rebounds per game in his uh, big season before he got drafted. But he only averaged one block. Wow, really? One block. I don't, I don't, I mean, you know, Manute Bowl was the same height and he had like five blocks a game and he weighed like, I don't know, a buck oh five. Well, also too, like... It's got that's got to be a sense of timing. I think that maybe like kind of leads to the fact, gives you kind of a tip that maybe he's not that athletic yep. in the sense that he can anticipate when another player is about ready to go up for a shot, so that way he could jump roughly a little bit behind that, so therefore he could reach it before it gets to the very peak of it and shut him down right away. I think that may be speaking more towards the issue he has, you know, with athletic timing, as probably will be prevalent. Through basically the entire WCWWF <laughs> run. So. It talks about his gigantism. All his body's growing so quick that everything can't, you know, it, his coordination will be off because he just doesn't know how to fucking use his body well, properly. And, and that's what I always talk about, too, with, with pro wrestling, you ha especially when I teach students, you have to know how to move your body, where your body's at at all moments of time. You have to know where you're at in the ring. You have to be in complete control of it. And I think that's always the, the fantastic thing about Sami Zayn and especially um, Cesaro, I think those two guys are some of the best when it comes to body control, especially as being as lanky as they are. You don't typically see somebody who's as lanky or as long as somebody like that having that much body control, but I think those two are the best at it. So that way when they wrestle each other, it looks fantastic because you see these long individuals having this unbelievable body control. And that's why they look so fantastic. Where someone like the size of Ricochet or AJ Styles, a bit more compact, it's a little bit easier yeah. to control a shorter distance of, of limbs where someone who's got a little bit longer limbs and seeing them have that much control is pretty rare. Well, always got to find an angle to bury AJ Styles, huh? Always, especially in front of you. Always <laughs> he just has it so chance. easy. <laughs> the whole the whole question, though, is how far can you bury him before you go through the flat earth and fall fuck off the you, bottom? Fuck you, fuck <laughs> well, you, fuck you. I mean, we are going to be talking about a different hemisphere of the world, <laughs> uh, which, I mean, we, we've, we've already have AJ Styles tuning out, so he didn't want to hurt it anyways, because like Argentina... <laughs> 
that you know in the southern it's hemisphere. It's not even there. It's not even there. It's <laughs> out of hemisphere. So he's not listening. All right. Jorge would be part of the Argentina national team that took part in the 1985 South American Basketball Championship, winning a bronze medal, as well as the 1988 Tournament of the Americas, where he attracted the attention of the Atlanta Hawks. At age 22, he'd be chosen in the 1988 NBA draft, with the Hawks taking the 7-7, 380-pounder in the third round, 54th overall. That same year, Hernan Montenegro was drafted 57 by the 76ers, making them the first two Argentinian players ever to be drafted in the NBA. I grew up in Atlanta, and upon learning this, the idea that Jorge Gonzalez could have been on the Atlanta Hawks, I'm probably Dominique Wilkins. I'm probably the biggest Dominique Wilkins fans in the world. And just thinking about, all right, you could have had this lineup. You could have Dominique Wilkins, Moses Malone, Doc Rivers, Reggie Theus, and Jorge Gonzalez. You got Moses Malone in the paint. With Jorge learning how to block shots, I mean, that's all the way to the championship. Am I right, Nick? Well, just like Dominique Wilkins would never play in the NBA Finals, Jorge would actually actually never play in an NBA game as he just couldn't keep up with the speed of the NBA. And that's what I always hear about the different levels of basketball. It's not necessarily the fundamentals and, you know, the shooting, the passing. It's the sheer speed of the game changes. The weirdest uh, little critique I saw that uh, it just shows, I guess, down there, they just don't know how to teach fundamentals as well, and it's just hard to pick up. He would dribble the ball with the palm of his hand instead of the tip of his fingers. Oh, which, wow. Which for, yeah. you know, basic NBA stuff, that's as basic as it can get. So he just he, – they weren't drilled into him down there. Well, and and would Nick speak to, like, just the difference of levels of, of basketball? I always remember a story of James Worthy, his rookie year playing for the Lakers – and James Worthy played for North Carolina, yeah. Dean Smith, one of the best college programs in the country. And in practice with the Lakers, they were on a fast break with Magic Johnson. And James was just running down the court, and all of a sudden he gets hit in the back of the head with a basketball. <laughs> and Magic's like, yep, when you play here, you got to keep your head on a swivel because you never know what's going to come at you. Yep. You just can't worry about getting to the end of the floor. You better get ready for the basketball all moments of time. The Atlanta Hawks were just going to cut Jorge until team owner Ted Turner had a bright idea. He thought maybe he could use him in this little company he owned, World Championship Wrestling. So in 1989, Ted Turner traded him to the WCW roster for Dangerous Dan Spivey and a future first-round draft pick. That's a solid trade. That's a solid trade. (laughs) And I don't know if it was necessarily Ted. I remember just recently on on JR's podcast, he was talking about this specific event where they had brought in John Gonzalez to the CNN Center, and it just drew a crowd of people of this giant man walking around like, hey, we just drafted him for the Atlanta Hawks. But then even even though they drafted him, they weren't necessarily sure he was going to play, and there was a lot of question marks, and they weren't for sure what they were going to do, and they were doing some publicity because of his height and how tall he was, and they were going to you know do some promotional work, but they, they were a little concerned he was even going to play. And I can't remember which executive... I think Jim Ross name checked who it was, and I'm I'm drawing a blank on it right now because it is 11:30 in the morning, and I went to bed at roughly about three o'clock last night. <laughs> Sidebar, and, and I've only had I only had two hours of sleep before that, so I'm pretty exhausted, and I can't remember. But I remember Jim Ross talking about this particular story of this giant basketball player walking in, and then people being enamored and saying that this could be our Andre the Giant. After training for just over a year, Gonzalez was introduced as Elegante on May 19th, 1990 at the pay-per-view Capital Combat. And I think the way that uh, he looks, I, this he looks like He-Man meets Karate Kid meets a 1980s Kmart laser tag outfit. I think it's pretty <laughs> much fucking on, on point. And, you know, people give WWF at this time a lot of grief because they're like, ah, oh, everybody's just such a cartoon. But at least when WWF, WWE, when they would dress somebody up as like a cartoon character at this moment in time in history, it at least looked kind of good. 
It looked like that there was some effort put into the outfit. WCW was trying to do the same thing, and it looked like they went to the dollar store yeah, and yeah. just kind of pieced <laughs> shit together. It looked very indie. Like it was like a shitty dad who forgot that his kid's birthday was coming up, and he runs to the gas station and tries to make everything work. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh, I can I can do this, and oh, there's this uh weird shitty action figure that is no discernible actual character, but the kid will like it. The kid will like it. And that shitty dad is Ole Anderson, <laughs> who could give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Ric Flair and Lex Luger were having a WCW heavyweight championship match in a still cage when the four horsemen came out, started trying to get in the cage. So Sting comes out to stop them because earlier in the night, Sting had been locked in a cage himself by the four horsemen before getting saved by Robocop. The thing that when I was looking this back up, it's not for the first movie. This was to help promote the sequel, Robocop 2. <laughs> Which apparently yep. was, like, very different than what they had planned. Like, apparently they had a really good RoboCop sequel, and then that all got scratched for whatever fucking reason. I I'm a fan of the second one. It's totally fucking dumb, and they got Kane and Tom Noonan and that little kid with the machine gun. But, yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> so, aside from RoboCop, Sting had even more weird friends, because as the horsemen overwhelmed Sting, down came a nearly eight-foot giant. He chases the horsemen away until Ole Anderson, without a doubt, screams some slurs loudly and got the cage raised up just enough for Barry Windham to sneak in and attack Lex Luger. Sting and Elegante come down and save the day, but then they just kind of disappear and the horsemen beat the shit out of Lex Luger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, ah, like, oh, we did our job. We're, we only got paid for two minutes of work. Also, I loved how, you know, Elegante is like the surprise new guy on the roster or whatever, making a surprise debut. But Jim Ross was still like, the 7'7", 450 pounder. Like, how do you know stats on this man who, who His just showed up? His favorite food is spaghetti. <laughs> His favorite color is blue. <laughs> you didn't know Jim Ross used to work at a carnival. He used to size people's height and weight up like like that. Yeah, he never got information. He never. He, that's the thing, Jim Ross, he doesn't want to know the finish of the match. He doesn't want to know height or weight. He just wants to guesses. And if like he is off by about 20 pounds, you get a free stuffed animal. But if he's on point, you get nothing. Pretty good deal. From there, the big man would hop on the house show circuit before making a stop at 1990's Great American Bash. And for the main event, Sting wrestled Ric Flair. And to keep the horsemen, specifically Ole Anderson, out of the main event, they handcuffed Elegante to Ole Anderson. Watching this, I really wanted more cutbacks to Ole and Gigante sitting there on the chair. Because unless I missed it, they just kind of, they come to it at the beginning at the end. But it's like, I wanted so many comic cuts, so many comedic cuts. 100% agree. That was like noticeable that they yeah. just kind of did it and then ignored it. With Elegante holding back Ole, Sting won the WCW title. That is weird because it's usually Ole Anderson's booking that is holding a minority back and not a minority holding back Ole Anderson. <laughs> Which I'm sure this was brought up in court when they had the WCW lawsuit. And he goes, I had a goddamn... Bah, 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 bah. Hold me back one time. I'm not a racist. It's a slur word in Georgia. Yeah. I apologize to anybody that heard that. <laughs> Elegante would spend a lot of 1991 having house show matches for the WCW championship against Flair. I had no idea this ever happened. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ric Flair talked about it in his shoot interview. We brought up his name and... Rick was just like, oh, he was such a nice guy, but he just, he had two left feet and he tried his best and they were trying to make him the next Andre, but he was most certainly not that. And, th and it's always the rap with everybody that had wrestled Gonzalez was always like, nice dude, just should not have been in the wrestling business. And, and if you can't get a, a good match out of Ric Flair... I don't know what what you can do, and I, I think that I think that's one of the things that they're like, okay, well, let's just put him in there with Ric Flair in the house shows and see if we can get anything from him whatsoever. <laughs> and if Ric Flair can't get anything out of him, then we can get nothing out of him. And I don't think they got anything out of him for the house show loop, and that's why we're seeing what we see with the rest of the career. It's funny Jake says that. I don't know if this, so this is really substantiated, but digging deep, there's a rumored. Metzler three star Flair Gigante match. I don't, they couldn't find the Wrestling Observer. It's just rumored. So this might not exist, and you're 100% correct. The best thing I uh, found about this is if you look at everything, Flair wins by DQ or Gigante wins by DQ. 
So then a little bit later into the house show feud, they have a no disqualification match. And Nick, do you want to guess how the match ends? By disqualification? No, by Jake. Count out. Yeah, you are correct, sir. <laughs> I know how you do shitty booking to protect somebody and fuck people over. Trust me, I'm, I've been living in the South now for 16 years. I know how you fuck over an audience by putting down a stipulation. And uh, watching so much of the TV was kind of fun because the basic feud was Gigante wanting the belt. So he would get on the mic and just scream very loudly, I want the belt. I want the belt. And then Flair comes out on coke and is screaming and ripping his clothes off. And that's basically it. But it's, it's, it works. Well, I remember Jim Ross talking about this on this podcast, on not this podcast, but his podcast, about how like getting Gonzalez to cut promos was difficult as well because he'd be like, Ric Flair. I'm going to kill you. And Jim Ross like, cut. You can't promise to kill somebody, <laughs> especially as a babyface, because as a babyface, you have to make a promise and then go out and do it. And you can't just murder Ric Flair. <laughs> and, and if you don't murder Ric Flair, you've lied to the people. So <laughs> you don't want to do that. Plus, when you say it like that, it's first degree murder because you're showing intention for a, <laughs> There's a, lot, a lot of intent, a lot, a lot of, intent, of intent, a lot of intent. But, you know, we're laughing about like how they debuted, you know, Elegante in WCW. They kind of did the same shit with Paul White, you know, the oh, giant. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm surprised they didn't claim that this is. Andre the Giant's Argentinian <laughs> illegitimate son. Yeah, I like, can see it. I, we're not too far off from like the the same rollout for this. Because Giant was same. what ninety five. Yes. Yeah. And the, you know, and then throwing the shirt at Hulk Hogan and like, oh, this is Andre's shirt. Like, you look at that, uh, how ridiculous that is. But it's just as ridiculous as this is. The only difference is, is that Paul White actually went on to become a pretty marketable wrestler and successful in his own right. It just this never panned out. So if Giant Gonzalez turned out to be a big fucking star and they got a four-star match with Undertaker at WrestleMania 9, <laughs> we're looking at a different person altogether. <laughs> so, Also, too, I met Dave Meltzer for the first time in person this past weekend. What? Uh, so, yeah, be very fucking jealous, Micah. 91 Super Bra Gonzalez would face Sid Vicious in a Battle of the Giants stretcher match where the loser must leave the match on a stretcher. Two minutes later, Gonzalez wins by pinfall after squeezing Sid's head with a claw and it's, no one leaves on a stretcher. It's not uh, even addressed in the commentary. <laughs> it's totally forgotten. After the match, El Igante is sneak attacked by Kevin Sullivan and One Man Gang before fighting them off. But uh, I want to do a little sidebar here. I was looking at the card for Super Bowl 91, and there was this match that was Oz with the Great Wizard versus Tim Parker. And I was like, what the fuck is this? So I hovered my mouse over Oz, and in even more of a what the fuck moment, that was Kevin Nash. You're goddamn right it was. Yeah. Nick told me this, and basically me and Nick have a running gag with each other if we tell something we don't know. I was like, oh, I hadn't heard that since I fell off my dinosaur. <laughs> and Nick telling me this for being a so-called wrestling fan was definitely Nick's biggest <laughs> fell off my dinosaur moment ever. Because it's like, yeah, fucking Kevin Nash was Oz, and uh, what was uh, Scott Hall was the diamond stud. They had so much gold in their hands, and they turned it into that shit. They're alchemists there at WCW. Next up for Igante was the Great American Bash 1991. We have a battle of the giants between one man gang and a man whose name literally means the giant. So he kind of has a strong case. Eligante brings some wrestlers with him who are smaller than he is. I will remind you that height is a spectrum, and I thank you, bigots, for not assuming their altitude. They come out, they attack one-man gang, and then Kevin Sullivan's out there, and for a minute, I thought Kevin Sullivan was one of the dwarves, too, because he's really <laughs> not that much taller. If anybody wants to talk shit about Eligante, he hip-tosses one-man gang in this match, and it looks pretty fucking good. Also, another fun moment in here, um, if you want to go back and watch the match, One Man Gang is on the top rope, and they're going to do the old Ric Flair, no, throws him off the top rope spot. One Man Gang is on the top rope. Elegante is not getting there quick enough, and you can actually hear One Man Gang scream twice, come on, come on, and then Gigante finally gets over there and tosses him over. He also suplexes One Man Gang. I like For uh, displaying what Gigante could do, this, this match is pretty good. Also, Bill Alfonso is the ref on this, and that will pop up a lot more throughout yeah. Gigante's career. 
I don't think people talk enough about one man gang being as good as he is because I, I mean, I've always scratched my head over the years. Like why is one man gang wrestling in ECW at this time? Or why is one man gang put in this position here with Hulk Hogan and big boss man? Why is one man gang put in this position even just right here? Like this guy's obviously green and you know, we need somebody to pull a good match out of him. And you pick one man gang. I can't say of, any particular match that sticks out of my head, but obviously he has enough respect in the locker room and enough cachet of knowing of being a good wrestler and pulling, you know, taking a two and making him a seven. He may not be the guy that makes a six, a nine, or a ten, but he's definitely the guy who takes guys like Elegante and uh. other, other people who the promoter probably tried to push out there, you know, and he could make them up to a passable level. So I think. I think just looking at the way that One Man Gang has been booked over his entire career, I think it kind of makes me respect him a little bit more as far Ooh, as like a wrestler and a, and a mechanic and a guy that pushes like a two to make him a seven. Yeah, I can see that. It's spot on, dude. Skipping forward to the fall of 91, the big guy would fly over to New Japan and tag up with Masa Saito, Jushin Liger, and Brian Pillman against various opponents. He'd then be part of 1991's Halloween Havoc's Chamber of Horrors match, getting the win as part of Sting's team and the Steiner brothers. They were trying to put Gigante over so much that, I mean, the whole time, you know, Shivani, JR, they're always like, he's young, he's got so much ability, blah, blah, blah. And at the end of the match, when they announced the winning team, Gigante's name is first because you got to put the headliner first. <laughs> at uh, Starcade 91, Eligante was part of the iconic Lethal Lottery Battle Bowl. <laughs> Eligante was randomly selected to team up with Larry Sabisco and the randomly drawn team of Dustin Rhodes and Ricky Morton, which got me thinking, Jake, how do you think Ricky Morton would interact with Attitude Era Gold Dust? <laughs> Goddamn boy. I haven't had sex with something like that since the one night. <laughs> I could just see him talking. About, <laughs> just, I could just see Ricky just saying all kinds of inappropriate things. I got damn boy. I like that long, long blonde hair you got right there from the behind. I almost slide up on you. Man. <laughs> I could just, see him just referencing that. I could just all the dirty jokes just come to mind. And if you wonder why, like, I'm getting, like, starting a dirty joke and, and then, then stopping it, because there's usually a word I can't say on a live <laughs> microphone that I want to exist for the rest of my career and my life. <laughs> but Ricky Morton gets that in the locker room. No problem. And be like, ah, it's Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ricky. Watching all of Gigante's matches, I want to point out, just because most of his spots didn't go good or look well. I think I said that backwards. But uh, Dustin <laughs> Rhodes and him have a spot where Dustin goes to do a drop toe hold, and Gigante kind of sells it, but he bends down, and then he starts beating on Dustin. But it, it's actually smooth and flawless, and it actually looks good to sell Gigante's height and the size discrepancy, and Dustin helps helps him nail it. And then Larry Zabisco is just standing in the corner like, Reddit man. <laughs> Egate's team loses when he throws his own teammate, Larry the Cruncher, into a double drop kick from Goldust and Ricky, thus eliminating Egate and Larry from the Battle Bowl. He then roll into January of 92, working with Big Van Vader at house shows before leaving WCW. And you know what? This is... It makes me sad to think of Vader in there, like, taking liberties with him because... Eligante is just such a nice dude, and Vader is kind of vicious. Hashtag fuck Vader. <laughs> just remind you. I was waiting for that. I was, fuck yeah, Vader. I was for that. So, f yes, I totally agree with you. Here, after Jake's fuck Vader, I'm going to say uh, they actually had a New Japan kind of Starcade supercard like at the beginning of January. And that's, I'm going to say, go out on a limb and say that is Giant Gonzalez's second best match of his career because him and Vader have a pretty good one in front of like 60,000 people. I mean, pretty good one, considering everything involved in the match. Before we move on from WCW, <laughs> which I feel like is where we're going to go next, um, I just got a couple of stories that kind of just, just tag on to here. I remember being in a locker room with Tracy Smothers in 2005, and that's about the time I was going through a lot of pictures that High Spots had purchased rights to. And one of the pictures is the Southern Boys with Elegante. <laughs> and I go, this is the weird, and it's like, it's funny because they're like doing the whole grab the fist thing, like almost like a high five caught in, in motion where it's like almost like a, that weird handshake thing. Kind of like the, the Marty and Sarah 
emblem where the, the hands are together. Oh, yeah. Type, type thing. And they, they're doing that to Elegante, but, like, the Southern boy's hands are, like, above their head. <laughs> and it's, it's just a very comical picture. And I and I went up to Tracy and I told him, like, I saw this picture with you and uh, John Gonzalez. And he goes, ah. Oh. He's like, George was such a good guy. And I guess they all rode together. It was like Southern Boys and Elegante, like just riding down the road together. Wow. And Tracy's like, man, he was such a nice dude, but he was such a bad wrestler. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, apparently, too, old Giant Gonzalez, big fan of country music. (laughs) Love country music. Tracy's like, man, he, he loved him some country music. You punch country music on. Elegante was a happy dude there. <laughs> <laughs> like, but of course, like it's early nineties, which is when like Garth basically ruled yeah, the world. Yeah. Breaky, breaky hard shit. Uh, like all, all that Clint Black, Alan Jackson, and just you know, Elegante just loved country music. Loved it. Also, too, when we decided to do this episode, Nick's like, Oh, I don't know how this is gonna go. You know, we're really gonna rely on George South stories to to carry this through. And I sent a message to George uh, last night. I'm like, hey, do you have any Giant Gonzalez stories? And anytime I send him a name, usually I'll get like a couple paragraphs and a text message or something. And all I got for Giant Gonzalez was, nah. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes, me and Gary Roll wrestled him one time and he about killed us. That's it. (laughs) Fair, Fair enough. I was like, all right, fair enough. All right, uh, real quick, we're going to transition from country music to rap music because I want to try to keep up my rap career from the Mabel episode. So if you go on YouTube, there is a PN News and Elegante tag oh, team match on the Power Hour, and we are going to do a little bit of rapping. I'm going to be PN News, and then Jake and Nick need to be my audience. I'll clue you in, but this should be easy. Also, Gigante dancing for this match. Wow. All right, just want to pay attention to the lyrics. Yo, posse, we're going to do it right. Elegante PN News, we have a right. Yo, homie, what are you gonna do when PN News and the giant bust a move on you? I say, yo, baby, yo, baby, yo. Yo, baby, yo, baby, yo. 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 Okay, we're done. Uh, I just want to <laughs> point out that PN News rhymed right with right. <laughs> you know, here's the thing. <laughs> People talk about how rap isn't as good as it used to be. <laughs> like people, that, that's, that's like you could have co- ended right there with that context. You know, pe- people, people say that a lot. Remember, like around this era, this early '90s thing, and any like marketing executives like, "Oh, well, this rap's really hot. Let's get a white dude to do it, and we'll make all kinds of money." You know, and we'll do, or we'll get Alan Thicke to rap, and we'll put that as like <laughs> yeah. the advertisement for Growing Pains, and like anybody would just do it, and they would consider it to be passable, just like PN News. Where now, if you get somebody to rap, they have to flow like a motherfucker. You, I could go up the street. And just find some dude the, who could spit straight fucking fire. <laughs> but you could have PN News and be like, yeah, he raps. He's good enough. So when we say that rap is better, the fact that we can find somebody doing it better on the street right now, as opposed to somebody who is actually playing a character on TV that raps, I'm just saying maybe we need to recontextualize that. All I have to say to you, Jake, is yo, baby, yo, baby, yo. So we wouldn't hear from the Giant until 1993 when he'd start a new year with a new company showing up at WWF's Royal Rumble. When I was watching a bunch of matches, I noticed that Fonzie, a.k.a. Bill Alfonso, you probably know him from his Sabu RVD manager days, he would pop up in almost every single match. And I finally stumbled across a video that's about 12 minutes long of Fonzie talking about his relationship with Gonzalez. And it turns out when he wasn't riding with the with Tracy Smothers and them, he was with Bill Alfonso almost the entire fucking time. They rode, they worked together, they hung out, and it was actually a package deal that Alfonso got set up through J.J. Dillon to move him and Gonzalez to WWF. Vince jumped on it like that, brought him up there immediately. And so, I mean, it's coming from Fonzie, and I know he sometimes his uh, memory's a little off or something, but he sounded genuine and uh, spot on with the stuff. So at the Royal Rumble, Undertaker had just cleared out the entire ring when a man in the weirdest onesie ever comes down, threatens to hug Undertaker for quite a while, and when Undertaker doesn't hug him back, Giant Gonzalez gives the Undertaker <laughs> the beatdown of his career at this point before getting shooed away by refs. He beats the shit out of him. 
And then he pulls him over to the ring post and does like the Bret Hart leg attack, which yeah. I don't under, like. I was like, I'm going to beat the shit out of you, but you know what? Then I'm going to slightly damage your leg. I, I didn't understand it, but it was that, hilarious. That's one of those things where you sit down and go, hey, what can you do? <laughs> yeah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> and you say that, and you're like, is there anything else? And you're like, nope. And you're like, all right, well, I guess we have to do that because you don't do anything else. Okay, that makes total sense. And also, too, you're gonna give him a hard time for the outfit. Let me, let me. <laughs> everybody knows I'm, I'm a, I'm a click apologist. I'm an apologist for a lot of other people that are awful, except for Vader. But let me be uh, offer maybe a little bit of an explanation for the John Gonzalez outfit. Okay, like the weird patches of hair. You know, we were talking about that when me and Nick were hanging out, and Michael wasn't there this past couple days ago. I remember. I don't wait. I mean, I don't remember <laughs> uh, that. And and Nick was talking about how he showed a picture of John Gonzalez to his girlfriend, and then also another uh, Charlotte comic who lives in L.A., Jake Stewart, and everyone was laughing about like, oh look how weird this outfit is that John Gonzalez wore in WWF, and I was like, no oh, man, like that's pretty accurate. Like that's. Like, all those patches of hair are where I get patches of hair on my body. Like, on the shoulder <laughs> and the thigh, awkwardly. Like, I got more hair on the side of my thighs than both the front of my thighs. And also, too, you don't want to see the crotchal region. Like, that's that's probably what... That's what I got going on down there. So, I'm just saying... It'd be like a weird Ken doll situation where it's just a smooth, no-existent yeah. space. So, like, that big furry part right there in the middle and the fur... Not, like, that's exactly where I have patches of hair on my body. So, I'm saying that... The John Gonzalez outfit probably more uh, physically accurate than you may ever know. And just like pro wrestling, you get hyperbolic on the height and the weight and everything. Why not the hair? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Throughout Giant Gonzalez's WWF run, he'd be managed by Harvey Wibbleman. And can we take a second and just appreciate that pairing? Because not only was Harvey a good mouthpiece, he made the Giant look 11 foot 50. Yeah. I mean, you get big guy with teeny guy, and it's you know, it's it's comical, it's uh, dynamic, it's yeah, it's it's a good photo op. It's like the thing when you say, "Oh my God, it was hailing outside." Look at the size of this hail ball, and then you have to put a penny down to show the scale. Giant Gonzalez is the gigantic hail ball, and Harvey is the little penny showing how just fucking huge he really is. I mean, that's what managers were were great at is making making their guys look so big. Like if you're just a regular side dude or a smaller person. They can help with that. They can assist with it because you see them walk out, and if you shoot from a lower angle, and you get a manager that's five five, five six, five seven, and then you shoot it from a lower angle, then that person looks ginormous, who's close to seven foot tall, and that and that's what you want is that aura and the, and also the the promos too, but also too if you're a camera guy, that's fucking frustrating as fuck because <laughs> you have this short person and they got a frame, so you then really got to so make it work. Just imagine like you got the camera set up and you're doing all these interviews and you just want to knock them out as fast as possible, fast as possible. You're getting the Hulk through, you're getting Macho through, you're getting Piper through, and they're all roughly about the same height and, you know, mean jeans in there and they're doing the interviewing and then all of a sudden fucking John Gonzalez walks in and you're like, fuck! <laughs> all right, let's move the fucking lights. Everybody else take a fucking break because I got to redo this whole goddamn set so I can get fucking Harvey Whippleman and Mean Gene in here and this big motherfucker in the frame all at the same fucking time. Oh shit, we can see that this is like a a set and we're seeing the outside we gotta make this a goddamn set bigger now so yeah as a cameraman gotta be frustrating we just kind of flew through the giants wcw career and we're kind of going to do the same for wwf because remember this is 1993 uh, monday night raw had really just started the house show circuit was still very much the focus of pro wrestling so we're not going to have that many matches to go over when it comes to giant gonzalez I watched way too many. Oh, I think I watched all of his jobber matches. I watched every single one that was pretty much 87 seconds. And we're just going to run through about three or four highlights. The best choke slam that Giant Gonzalez ever hit was on Louis Spicoli because Louis Spicoli is the fucking best. <laughs> Louis jumped up as high as he could. Giant picked him up, slammed him down, looked as good as it could. This is one of the best bookings on his matches. Three on one handicap match. The Giant choke slams Louis. He rolls out of the ring. The other two guys, terrified, just run the fuck off. Louie runs off after getting chokeslammed, and Giant wins by count out in a three-on-one handicap match. He chokeslams Jim Powers, right hand on his throat, left hand digging into his mullet. And one of my favorite spots, he's up against Virgil. Look this one up. They do the ten-finger knuckle test of strength. 
with Virgil standing on the top turnbuckle to show <laughs> just how fucking big Gonzalez is. It's a really cool visual. And uh, this one goes back to WCW, but Shivani is having to explain why Gigante's clotheslines look so odd. And he it, it makes sense. Like He has to swing around his waist so that he can hit his opponent in the throat so that he can actually connect with him. That's all I got for weird jobber shit. Moving forward from the Rumble, he'd do a lot of house show matches against Macho Man and Virgil, all leading up to WrestleMania 9. And at WrestleMania 9, the almost eight-foot-tall Giant Gonzalez would meet The Undertaker outside in Las Vegas. No hair. No hair on the costume. What the <laughs> fuck? It really looks worse. I le- The hair is at least unusual and what the fuck enough to just gawk at but this is just like a weird bodysuit from some 80s tv show where they're teaching you about what organs you have in your fucking body <laughs> yeah and and like i said the body hair on the suit is accurate those, those are accurate patches i have on my body that i have to shave all the time <laughs> gonzalez ko's the undertaker with some chloroform and uh, all chaos picks loose gonzalez choke slams bill alfonso Gonzalez refuses to leave the ring, which brings Undertaker back out to beat that ass. And when everything settles down, they announce a DQ and the crowd actually pops pretty hard for it. The shine moments when Undertaker comes back on Giant were actually the crowd was really into and I forgot how much the crowd was really digging the match. I mean, it's clearly not a classic, but it wasn't as shitty as I remembered. Uh, Even Paul Bearer takes a big bump when Gonzalez headbutts him and he slams to the apron it's got some decent little moments if you know considering i'm gonna say considering a whole fucking lot <laughs> bruce pritchard is talking about how the undertaker before this match was like telling bruce like you owe me for this one like this <laughs> you need to apologize to me multiple times and bruce even said uh, he said even to this day he has to apologize to the undertaker for this match but i gotta say undertaker's entrance is probably <laughs> the vulture the vulture and everything it's pretty fucking cool like, yeah. and they've they've used clips from this match multiple times in like undertaker highlight reels of the streak for whatever reason yeah. like it was just and, and you know the undertaker being as as hot he was that this is like a, this is the optimum time for the undertaker but it's just funny that the wwf would would take such a chance on him like john gonzalez after it was such an epic fail in wcw like i almost feel like it was like vince's thing like huh you think you got the new Andre, huh? You wouldn't know what to do with him if you had him. I'll show you. You think you got the next Andre? I'll make him the next Andre. I'll put him in there with the Undertaker, and it's going to fucking work. <laughs> and then uh, what do you do? These weird leg kicks. Okay, well, never mind. <laughs> you know what? Let's, let's get through this. And th- that was another thing that surprised me, talking about, okay, his first feud is The Undertaker. Boom, put him in there. And then, like Nick said, he had a, he had basically had a house show feud with Randy Savage. So he's working Savage immediately to build up to The Undertaker. I mean, they're putting him up there, not just Undertaker big time, but Savage, too, on each end. But I would have to say that that's probably Randy going, oh, you think you really want to get this guy? You think he's going to be the next Andre? I'll, he, needs a little, he needs a little work. Oh, yeah, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll do the work. Oh, Flair couldn't get him over? Oh, the Macho Man's gonna get him over. And, and then match number one, he goes, Oh, fuck, I made a mistake. Oh, shit, the bookie sheet says three months on this. Oh, yeah, I made a mistake. Oh, no. After WrestleMania 9, Giant Gonzalez would lose a King of the Ring qualifying match against Tatanka by DQ after refusing to break a chokehold and shoving a ref. And uh, yet again, the ref he pushed down, Fonzie. Good old Fonzie taking bumps. Oh, man. What if Giant Gonzalez <laughs> did end up playing basketball and he played long enough to be at the Malice in the Palace? Like, wouldn't that be fucking awesome? <laughs> wow. I, I, I don't he, know why I'm bu- rebooking the Malice in the Palace. Like, <laughs> def- <laughs> that, that, that's he definitely I'm- wouldn't be in the crowd. He'd be punching the guy on the court. Yeah, like <laughs> I just, of, or he'd just be the guy who would get uh, swarmed by uh, like twelve fans and do the Hercules move, or he just throws them all off in one fail swoop. I just imagine Giant Gonzalez getting so pissed at Dennis Rodman and Rick Mahorn. Like I just, I don't know why, I don't know why that's in my head. I'm, and I don't know why I have to rebook the Malice in the Palace. That's how that's how messed up my brain is. <laughs> On the build-up to SummerSlam 93, Gonzalez would work a ton of house shows against The Undertaker. As part of the build-up, Gonzalez would also cut a promo with Bobby Heenan, where Harvey handled it, but the giant 
closed it out and he actually really crushed it on the mic he was like undertaker i have a giant surprise for you and like it was clear <laughs> and like scary and spencer who was sitting on the couch beside me not paying attention goes he means his dick <laughs> you can hear more of spencer's jokes on mixed dish abc's new hit comedy airing tuesdays at 9 p.m I knew it was coming. I just didn't know it be <laughs> oh, this particular moment. I dropped it in at the, the open mic I ran last night. There you go. <laughs> what are you doing here? Go home. <laughs> hey, forget the fact that there's billboards and bus wrapped in, in advertisement for Mixish, and it's all over social media and everywhere. No, no, no. Me and Nick need to plug it on our podcast <laughs> and the open mics that we do. Those are the demographics. Undertaker also has some pretty good promos leading up to this. There's one where he's just cutting promos and he's in the graveyard and it's the camera from the bottom of the grave and he's just throwing dirt on top of the piece of plastic over the camera. There, there's some decent little build up to this. At SummerSlam, we get the iconic rematch. Gonzalez, Taker 2. They'd face off in a no DQ, no count out rest in peace match, which is just a no DQ, no count out match called a rest in peace match. There are no other elements added to it. Harvey and Giant Gonzalez had possession of the urn since Harvey and Mr. Hughes had stolen it, and Paul Bearer had apparently been off TV for a minute, so Undertaker walks to the ring bearerless, and Harvey <laughs> comes out holding the urn. And with no snarkiness, no smarkiness, no irony whatsoever, to me, this was his most improved match of his like entire career. He moved a little smoother. His offense was a little better. He, he still sold like he was selling used cars. True. There was a lot of growth here, I think. And the urn is in the possession of Harvey Whippleman, but halfway through the match, Paul Bearer makes his way out, and the crowd pops like a motherfucker. He's got a black death wreath. He comes out, Stan Hansen hilarious the shit out of Harvey Whippleman. The crowd pops even more. I mean, is Paul Bearer just, you know, in the limelight, whipping ass? Paul runs over, he takes the urn, and from there, Undertaker is untouchable, winning the match with his trademark clothesline from the top rope. <laughs> yeah, but he, he hit five clotheslines leading up to it, because, I mean, do we even want to see an attempted tombstone pile driver on Gonzalez? <laughs> There's no way. I mean, I do want to see that. That was uh, that was a dumb question. I just don't want people to die. That's the main thing. Vince has a great line at the end of this match was, at least we know what a rest in peace match is. And, and then all you can think <laughs> is, yeah, Vince, a piece of shit. After the match, Gonzalez pulls a total LeBron and blames his manager for the loss, choke slams him, <laughs> and covers him with the black reef, and I guess kind of turns face? Yeah, he gets a he gets a pop from the crowd. So I mean, it's it's kind of in the cards, and I guess they kind of like, all right, we're doing this. After SummerSlam, Gonzalez would spend a ton of time in the USWA before WWF more or less gave up on him. The USWA was kind of developmental. Like if guys needed to work, you know, work on their stuff, or like they had somebody who was very raw or rugged, they'd send him to USWA. And Lawler was down there, who I believe was working with the company at the time, or. They had a good relationship with Jerry Jarrett. So it was like a situation of like, we'll send some WWF guys down there, help you with some houses and get some people, get some eyeballs on your product. Also, too, guys will have the ability to work on Wednesdays and Thursdays and like off days for us and get some more ring time and, and, and then they can hop back on the house show loop. So that way it's like, you know, doubling down. It's USWA is basically the open mics for <laughs> professional wrestling. <laughs> One of Giant Gonzalez's last appearances in WWF was on an episode of Monday Night Raw that aired October 4th, 1993 in a 20-man battle royal where the final two wrestlers would meet in a future match for the Intercontinental Championship. The match is kicked off by Macho Man who comes down to the ring giving Gonzalez two double axe handles before the Wizard of Oz now turned truck driver Diesel, our boy Bam Bam, Macho, Adam Bomb, my new pal 123 kid, Marty Jannetty, and a future episode Bastion Booger dump out the giant in about 20-30 seconds. Three days after Monday Night Raw, WWF announced that Gonzalez had left the company after they let his contract expire on October 7th, 1993, even though they'd air a taping of Superstars October 24th, setting up an angle after Harvey Whippleman's new client, Adam Baum, had won a match and was beating up a job guy. Gonzalez comes out, confronts the two, and actually gets a huge pop. But obviously, right? the Gonzalez-Adam Bomb feud would never happen as he was no longer with the company. 
he comes out in plain clothes too. He's just got like blue jeans and a jacket on, and he looks somehow looks more intimidating just in a normal man wearing normal giant clothes than some weird fucking bodysuit. From here, Giant Gonzalez would try his hand at acting. Gonzalez played the role as Manny, a carnival sideshow giant, in a 1993 <laughs> episode of Baywatch. I saw this episode. <laughs> the full thing? When it came out, yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, I haven't seen it in years, though, uh, but I do remember it. I remember it sticking out in my head. Pam and- Anderson, puberty days, am I right? Yes. 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 For sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Also, too, like I, I vividly remember this because I was aware of the WCW Baywatch episode, and then when I watched this episode, it was like, now granted, like, I watched them out of order because sometimes in syndication they would come on at different times, but like anytime Baywatch is on, it doesn't matter because like different seasons get jumbled around. <laughs> yeah. Depends. You don't on. need to follow the narrative. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm just yeah, exactly. And like certain stations, they had different syndication deals. Like obviously Monday nights on my Fox channel, that you, you get the new episode. But like sometimes I'd run a marathon over the weekend. Your memory is pretty impressive for Baywatch. <laughs> yes, uh, Baywatch. I've been I've been trying to do other Baywatch episodes on how did this get booked, and Zane keeps going no stop let's stop. Doing Doing Baywatch episodes. Put your fucking pants on. Stop Fuck. Stop requesting Baywatch episodes. Come on, they're only like 47 minutes long and Pam Anderson's on them. <laughs> but I remember this episode and it, it sticks out of my head mostly because Giant Gonzalez is wearing his Giant Gonzalez bodysuit airbrushed muscles oh. outfit in this episode. So if you wonder like why they put that outfit on him, I think they kind of had a sense like carnival giant strongman type thing sideshow giant that's what they would wear so i think that's why he wore the outfit is because vince saw carnival sideshow giant and he wore the same exact outfit in the baywatch episode and i remember it being like a situation like he's so lonely and he's a giant and we need to befriend him and he's hiding underneath the pier and oh, they, poor, so, guy. poor guy they treat him like a monster when really he's got a soft soul so i think that was the whole premise of the outfit i think i think hobie got involved it did the clip that's on youtube is they go to the carnival game and hobie really sucks at carnival games i mean just a bag of shit well hobie sucked at a lot of goddamn <laughs> shit but of course when your dad is mitch buchanan and he's this alpha male great at every Everything loved by all the ladies. I mean, he's fucking David Hasselhoff. And then you're fucking, you're, your name is Hobie. Like, it's going to, you're going to be less than. <laughs> the uh, giant crushes a couple. Uh, it's like the throwing the ball into the bouncy basket, knocks down the three cups of the beanbag. But then he gets to the best carnival game of all time. I'm sure you'll all agree with me. Catapulting the frog onto the lily pad. Because even if you miss, you get to catapult a frog and it splashes really fucking big. Can we all agree? Uh, frog catapult, best carnival game of all time. <laughs> uh, it's definitely a good one. I'm still a big fan of shooting the water in the clown's mouth. <laughs> right, That's okay. still, still. My, one of my tops i think any throwing game or like any rigged basketball game is pretty, pretty yeah pretty where the, the rim is the size of the ball those are fun mm-hmm. or it's like off kilter a little bit <laughs> i'm so confident in my jump shot that if i don't make it i'm like this is clearly rigged <laughs> yeah exactly doesn't he die at the end of this episode? It, is, it has been a long time since I've I've seen Jake this. Jake was already done by the end of the episode, yeah, if you know I, what I mean. It, it, it has been a long time, but I knowing what I know about Baywatch, I don't think they would end on that big of a uh, bummer. Right. Like, I, just, I don't think that that's like what they would do. Oh, uh, Hoobie, your friend died. Oh, well, <laughs> boobs. I mean, like, Lieutenant Stephanie Holden, she got cancer... <laughs> And then, like she was, I'm just fi- impressed you remembered the full. She, name. she got, yeah, she got, she got stage four cancer. Then she was fine, and then she got cancer again. Then she was almost almost died multiple times. Like nobody really died in Baywatch. <laughs> there was Different. many false finishes for Lieutenant Stephanie Holden. And then when she finally died, it was like fucking thing fell on top of her, like on a boat. It was like some <laughs> ridiculous, the most ridiculous finish. And that's because they're like. Yeah, I don't want to wear a fucking bathing suit anymore when I act. How about I fucking, like, take some regular gigs? And, like, nobody ever died. They just kind of, like, faded away. I mean, even, like, Hobie's mom. <laughs> they got a, they, they got a different, like, mom to play her. Like, and they, they had plenty of opportunities to kill her off when they're like, hey, the actress that is playing Hobie's mom can't be with us anymore, so maybe we can just kill her off so we can have something dramatic on Baywatch. They're like, nah, we'll, do, we'll, we'll act like she's gonna die, but then we'll save her life, and then we'll get a different actress, like, 
a season or two later and people have already forgotten what she's looked like. Like there was one time where like Hobie's mom was in a jet with her new boyfriend and then it went down in the ocean and then they had to dive underneath and like get him out of the fucking plane in the bottom of the ocean. Oh my and God. The and they get her up and then she's on the boat and they got to do CPR and they got to shock her. And I'll never forget. This was the oddest thing about Baywatch. I can tell you won't. No, I'm going to tell you. No, I'm going to ever forget. I will never forget this. <laughs> Where they're on the boat and they're gonna they get the like the the paddles and it's one of those like portable ones where they time it and they're going and and it does it itself as opposed to the person like grabbing and saying right, clear right. the the machine will go shocking in three two one and clear and then it would shock and they got the thing and the machine is counting off this is a TV show this is a TV show this isn't real life they, they got the machine hooked up to to Hobie's mom and she's really shocked and they go and the machine says shocking in three. Too. And that's when Hobie puts his hand on his mom and goes, Mom, it's going to be okay. I go, Motherfucker, you're going to get shocked. <laughs> like, get your goddamn hands off. And then Hobie died? No. Ah. Fucking, the, like, Mitch Buchanan smacked it away. And he goes, This is why my fucking son ain't going nowhere. He deserved to die, though. Jake's new uh, Baywatch podcast because, Holy fuck, that was scary. How much Jake remembers about Baywatch will be coming up in a couple months. It was my formative years. <laughs> Gonzalez would also make an appearance in the movie Hercules, the Underworld, and also had roles in 93 and 94 in the critically acclaimed greatest show of all time, Hulk Hogan's Thunder in Paradise. There's a good clip of Hogan and Giant battling out on a boat. My favorite part, Hogan hits him with a chair, and it's one of those breakaway chairs, but this is like the most breakaway chair ever. Easily 5,000 pieces. It's amazing. And uh, real quick, Hercules, Kevin Sorbo, is now a QAnon conspiracy dumb fuck on Twitter if you'd like oh, to check that out. Nice. Nice. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing, though. For all this talk of, like, this guy's going to be the next Andre, this is going to be the next Andre, this is the next Andre, I'm thoroughly fucking disappointed that Billy Crystal did not cast him instead of George Mirasol. Uh, yeah. I thought you were going to say sequel. No, because uh, <laughs> Billy Crystal wrote a script specifically with Andre the Giant in mind because they became friends on The Princess Bride, and they, they he wrote a script, and then, of course, Andre passed, and he still had the script, and they're like, how about George, George Mirasol? And he goes, ah, good enough. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen Giant Gonzalez in that movie with Billy Crystal. We are we are not better for for it because we don't have that in our world. We are not in the better timeline because we don't have John Gonzalez on screen with Billy Crystal. But I think you got room for a sequel there where you do George Mirasan first and then Giant comes in as like I don't know, his long lost brother or some type of rivalry. I think I mean you could make that franchise boom. All right, Nick, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> By summer of ninety four, Gonzalez was Back in wrestling, working in Japanese promotions, New Japan, and war, using his old ring name, Elegante. He'd work with Liger, Black Tiger, and Scott Norton. His last singles match was on February 8th, 1995, when he faced Great Muda, when in the middle of the match, known cheater Great Muda realized he could not beat the giant fairly in a sportsmanlike <laughs> competition, so he stands up on a folding chair and in, it's so good. in direct violation of the rules of pro wrestling and the Geneva Convention, uses chemical warfare to green mist Gonzalez, and the green mist waged a full-scale attack on the giant's white blood cells, paralyzing his endocrine system. Then, and only then, was the lesser wrestler, Muda, able to take down the giant and hit him with the moonsault. It was a true miscarriage of justice. Did you mean missed carriage of justice? Uh. I'm glad you brought that spot up because it's the best. But the best part is the context because Muda, at one point, he blows the mist, but he doesn't adjust for the height, so he just blows it into his stomach. So he's like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to do something else. So then he goes out of the ring, gets a chair, beats the shit out of Giant Gonzalez, then sets it up, and he's like, oh, I got this shit now. Boom, right in the face. The setup, Muda shows why he's so good, even in the small little details. Another one, the Gigante Nails match is one of the weirdest fucking, am I watching this? Is WCW El Gigante versus WWF Nails getting ring announced by Japanese announcers in New Japan Pro Wrestling. It's just one of those things that you feel like you'd only see on a video game. It's fucking, I mean, it's under two minutes and Nails no-sells everything. But uh, yeah, real shit there. On December 8th, 1995, Gonzalez wrestled his final match ever, teaming up with Koji Katao. Is it Katao? Or you got it I right. think you yeah. see the, yeah, the Hayabusa yeah. episode, man. I don't know. Yeah, I think Katao. Te I don't know. I, th I think you're right. All right. Teaming up with Koji Katao in a countout loss to Senja and Typhoon. You got and Typhoon wrong. That's not how you say it. <laughs> Shock! 
Master. Oh, that's how you say yeah, it. Yeah, this match was very similar to like <laughs> late Andre, where it was just like lean me up against the ropes and run into me, man. That's that's all I got. Like his knees were gone at this point. Well, and also to keep in mind in Japan, they're they used to giant baba, so like they know how to handle that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're like, oh, so we're doing the giant baba match. Got it. In December 95, Gonzalez retired from pro wrestling due to serious health issues and returned home to Argentina. After his retirement from wrestling, Gonzalez lived on a ranch in Argentina in his later years. In October 2009, he was sadly confined to a wheelchair and also had to use a dialysis machine due to his failing kidneys. And Spencer helped me translate a six-minute interview from Spanish to English that someone in Argentina did with Gonzalez. Holy shit, I was going to try to do that, and you actually did it. You're amazing. (laughs) So he more or less said that fighting against all his sicknesses had cost him a lot of pain, but he was happy to have his fans. He said he gladly trade any amount of money for health. He said he was sad to not be able to do things like go out dancing with a lady. And I think it was a local Argentina soccer team was actually auctioning off jerseys and stuff to help him cover medical expenses. Then, sadly, Jorge Gonzalez died due to complications from diabetes and severe heart issues on September 22nd, 2010 in his home in Argentina. He was only 44 years old. Final thoughts on Giant Gonzalez. A lot of people, like, it's always fun to just kind of make fun of Elegante and Giant Gonzalez. And we've, we've had some fun on this episode. I think, I think we have. But from every time you, you hear his name brought up on podcasts or, like I said, when I had the conversation with Tracy Smothers or we, we asked Ric Flair about him in the shooter interview, right away, the first thing that everybody always says is, like, such a nice dude probably shouldn't have been in wrestling and and like i said at the very beginning of this episode he went from playing basketball you know he was making money because he was so tall and you know that's why he got into basketball because of his height and then all of a sudden he was told he couldn't play basketball anymore but then somebody wants him to do something else athletic because he's tall in life you know you're gonna go through that least path of resistance and the thing that's offered in front of you and people are gonna give you money and then all of a sudden you're like well, this is what I do, and and I, I was a basketball player. You tell me I can't play basketball anymore, and here's an opportunity to do something athletic, and I can make money off of it, and it's pro wrestling. I don't know anything about pro wrestling, but you can tell me that I can figure it out, and people are like, it's real easy. You can figure it out, and people are telling him, and people are putting money in front of him, so of course he's going to do it, and they're going to tell him, we're going to put you on TV, and what's he going to say? No, I'm not ready, and does he even know if he'd be ready or not? I don't even know, but from every account, he was just this super nice dude, and I've heard a lot of stories that actually when he passed away, he didn't have a lot of money. As, as we talked about, they had to do a fundraiser to pay for his medical bills. From what I hear, the reason why he didn't have a lot of money is during his whole time in the States and all of his runs, he was sending so much money back home to take care of his family and his loved ones and his friends. He was overly generous that when he got sick and he needed that money, he didn't have it because he gave it away to so many people. And then I even heard this wonderful story that I think it was Harvey Whippleman was sending money down there for him in his later years because, you know, Harvey empathized with him because he knew that he was sending a lot of money down to take care of his family. And now when he's sick, he's not getting taken care of. And from all accounts I hear from Harvey Whippleman, he is the tightest and stingiest individual ever. For you to get enough empathy out of Harvey Whippleman, (laughs) like for you to get $5 out of Harvey Whippleman, like Harvey Whippleman has a book of people who owe him (laughs) very small amounts of money, and he will remind you over and over and over again. For Harvey Whippleman to open his wallet enough to pay for somebody's medical bills because he has that much affection for you just shows how wonderful of an individual that Jorge and Gonzalez was. John Gonzalez was, he was such a cool spectacle to see. Like there are so many cool shots of him just towering over his opponent and the fans. And I get why people thought he was going to draw money. I mentioned this earlier. A lot of the bad spots in his career were somewhat out of his control. Maybe if they gave him another year of training and kept him off TV for a year, you know, maybe we're talking about one of the great big men of all time. 
he had a pretty cool life though you know pro athlete in basketball pro in wrestling he worked against rick flair he worked with sting he worked against the undertaker at wrestlemania he did a solid chunk of tv by all accounts super nice dude and i actually i think that hurt him as like a hill because his face just looks so nice he just looked like too nice of a person to be like an angry monster out of all the qualities when i look at people and just kind of like oh do i identify with them do i understand them as dumb as it is if you're tall and kind of lanky i will identify with you because i in fact grew up tall and lanky as shit so watching giant do everything i was like i understand i i understand all your limbs don't always work like they should sometimes you got to get used to it but you get through it another thing that really tied me to him was talking about why he went back home apparently his mom was really ill he spread his money out to her he spread his life out to her he spread his time out to her he suplexed barry windham rick flair and one man gang i mean he's got single wins over arn anderson bobby eaton and cactus jack he did all these amazing things like jake and nick touched on he led a good life it's one of those fucked up things where the size and condition that you have gives you so many opportunities and experiences but that is ultimately what ends your life so early and it's just it's one of those tough balancing acts two things that we didn't touch on that i thought were really cool is giant gonzalez's choke slam which he actually grabs him slams him and holds the choke for the pin another thing that was underrated as hell with him is his entrance music in wwf it's just an ominous mood with a drum it's creepy as shit and it fit his character really well and to see who giant was as a person just go on youtube find there's tv interviews before he played basketball and even if you don't understand and there's no subtitles you can see how good-natured and kind and sweet and like there's there's a moment in one of the interviews where the background crew starts busting up and laughing at what he's saying and you get caught up in the moment just because you can tell he's a good fucking storyteller and he's jovial and his spirits are high that it's infectious as shit and i just to see who he really was those interviews without subtitles is who you see who he is as a man more than any of his wrestling all right well thanks for listening to this episode of tim bell pod if you want to help us out leave us a rating and a review if you want to throw a little money our way head over to patreon.com slash tim bell pod i'm nicolessa on all the social medias mike is j trotter on twitter man scout manning is at man scout manning on all the social medias i'll be ready i'll be ready (laughs) whenever (laughs) you need me forever and always i'll be here boobs motherfucker you gonna get (laughs) shocked